it is the next frontier of health science and medical intervention and is grounded in some of the hardest kinds of science to do. It's only simple in how it's prescribed. I initially felt enormous skepticism. Who's this long-haired Berkeley guy? But now they are recognizing mind-body relationships are fundamental to life expectancy and disease. Okay, fantastic. Well, and it's Daka Keltner, if I yeah, correct. Know correctly. And the book, yeah. or A-W-E, so the, the, the subtitle, The Transformative Power of Everyday Wonder. I have to say, I really like the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it's even brought me like talking points with my children. Like we have, you know, it's not often things work can translate into chats with little kids, but things like the discussion of um, oxytocin. So like yeah. we, have a, we have a beloved dog and everyone knows it's a, it's a warming thing to kind of look in a dog's eyes. But this, yeah. this idea that you're both you and the dog are getting yeah. a release of oxytocin, it just adds mm -hmm. that extra knowledge to it. It's amazing. Everybody should know about oxytocin. They, re they really should. You know, and I, yeah. I talk to them straight away. And, it, and, and that's really what I like about the book, because everyone, I think, kind of knows on some level that seeing things of wonder, experiencing things of wonder is, is good for you. But the, this book is actually sort of giving it scientific weight and saying, not, not only is it a nice thing, it's actually got potential for, well, in, not, not, not just enhancing your life, but lengthening your life and making you overall yeah. more healthy. So perhaps one of, the, one of the surprising things, though, is I think when we think of awe and wonder, we think of nice things. Yeah. But maybe we could start with one of the things that struck me in the book is it's not all about nice stuff. No, not at all. I mean, you know, I, I learned that... Um, you know, working with prisoners and, and that they feel awe in prison, contemplating the difficulties of life in prison and the injustices that they face. Um, I learned that, you know, talking to artist Rosalind Fisher, who, you know, really sort of reflected on the basis of her disease and found awe in thinking about that. And I learned it, you know, in my own trauma of losing my brother too early to colon cancer and just in the grief that followed his loss, uh, just just trying to figure out the mysteries of life, you know, and fueled by awe, like, what is a human life? What is my brother? How does he stay with me? Um, so yeah, awe is really interesting in that it spurs us to feel energized and to wonder about things, but often in facing trauma. I guess when you when you when you're talking about difficult things, how long since you lost your brother? Four years. Four years. I'm really sorry about that. You talk very Thank you. about it in in the book and because this all you've talked about for a long time right because i've seen you've done lectures going back a few years but the book's brand new so was the loss of your brother was that the kind of spur to take this to the next level very much so i mean when he died i i literally was in grief for three months and then got a bunch of books that matter a lot to me and just started writing you know about grief and on you know our lives his our brotherhood and it led me to the book how, how do you what, what are the kind of first studies that made you think that we can actually you know put some meat on the bones and make this a real thing that what was what were the first kind of studies you yeah you know there was one it was interesting it was from 2006 or 2007 and we had been struggling to 
make people feel awe in the laboratory for very sensible reasons. And then, you know, my we uh, took participants and we had them stand by this replica of a T-Rex. And it's awe-inspiring. You know, it's giant and it's dramatic and it's, you know, it's got all the power of a, a, a dinosaur skeleton. And uh, people felt awe. And we there we documented that that brief experience of awe, you know, outside of the lab near this T-Rex skeleton transformed their sense of self, right? They suddenly felt more collective and communal compared to a Western individualistic self. Um, and that taught us like get outside, get people in nature, get people at Yosemite, listening to music, rely on, on the, the world's sources of awe. So how did, they, how did they react differently? So you're saying you, you're asking them questions when they're in the presence of this great big thing. And then you're asking them questions when they're just what in a Norm, more normal environment is that yeah well this was you know classic control condition which is they just write who are you i am and fill in a sense stem and they just got define who they are our control condition is they're standing in the same place and instead of looking into the replica of the t-rex skeleton they're turned in the opposite direction looking down a hallway right so it's the same physical place but doesn't have all Amazing. Another another thing that stood out is you. There's a lot of talk about in, inflammation. Yeah. In the in the, in the health and wellness sphere, yeah. it's a huge factor in pretty much every everything. Illness. Yeah. And the question, I suppose, is how do you how do you tackle it? And you know, there yeah. are various medical ways of tackling it, m most of which have other consequences. You know, because inflammation's there for a reason, and you start taking drugs to fight inflammation you know there are potential effects yeah. from those but you were saying there are studies where or if I, if I remember this correctly that or itself has anti-inflammatory properties is that right yeah i mean that was that was another really big finding and thank you for flagging that you know we have measures we can pinpoint how regularly you experience awe with pretty well you know well-constructed scales we related it to blood draws of inflammation, interleukin-6, I think it was. And it was awe that led to or was associated with lower levels of inflammation. And then you link that to a lot of the nature immersion literature uh, that people like Ming Kuo are writing about where, you know, nature immersion reduces inflammation. And so we, and in a more recent paper, we're making the case that awe through nature, through music through meditation through spirituality reduces inflammation as one of the central explanations of why awe benefits our health so it was a really astonishing finding to us how have you had much reaction from the medical community about that yeah it's incredible you know the i speak to thousands of medical doctors a year um, it's one of my most important contexts for speaking yeah, when they when the medical community hears that finding, they they perk up and they're like, I'll listen to this guy talk about awe. And now, you know, out here, for example, in California, medical doctors are prescribing nature. And I think in the next five to 10 years, it will be to prescribe music or an awe walk, right? Something that brings you awe. So, yeah, they, they are definitely paying attention to that finding. Because are they? Because you know, the, it can sound. It could sound. I, mean, I was wondering if you'd had any um, 
any kind of digging in of the heels because it, it's sort of what people used to say years ago you know rather than rather than have a medical intervention why don't you get outside more why don't you walk more get into nature and it kind of seems obvious and i think the, the medical profession is all about doing something clever isn't it whereas this is just something anyone can pick up yeah but 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 the medical world is is humbly recognizing you know that mind body relationships are fundamental to life expectancy and disease and you know our surgeon general vivek murthy the highest you know medical officer in the country his legacy is about social connection but grounded in an understanding of if i feel connected to the world i'm physically healthier and we understand a lot about the neurophysiological pathways of cortisol and vagal tone and inflammation you know what i write about in the book and so, yeah, you know, they, I initially felt encountered enormous skepticism and they'd laugh at me, you know, not laugh, but just like, who's this long haired Berkeley guy. But now, you know, they are recognizing uh, that the mind matters and, and awe is one of the central determinants of robust physical health. Yeah, but, but, but the medical world is, is humbly recognizing, you know, that mind-body relationships are fundamental to life expectancy and disease. And, you know, our Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, the highest, you know, medical officer in the country, his legacy is about social connection, but grounded in an understanding of, if I feel connected to the world, I'm physically healthier. And we understand a lot about the neurophysiological pathways of cortisol and vagal tone and inflammation, you know, what I write about in the book. And so, yeah, you know, they, I initially felt encountered enormous skepticism and they'd laugh at me, you know, not laugh, but just like, who's this long haired Berkeley guy. But now, you know, they are recognizing uh, that the mind matters and, and awe is one of the central determinants of robust physical health. It's good that they are recognizing that there was a, yeah. there was a, there was a piece on the BBC radio earlier and they were talking about mindfulness walks. There's this lady on, they're talking about you going out, similar, I guess, to the all walks you talk about, which is going out yeah. in nature and finding things to be inspired by. Because, you know, it's a big difference if you go out for a walk and you're, you know, you're in your phone or you're listening to something, whatever, and you don't look around. So she was encouraging people to get out and do this. But the way it was, the way it was treated was like, here's all the seriousness and here's something fun and quirky that doesn't I know. This, this, you do get this kind of, I don't know, this kind of, maybe it's, maybe it's a sort of scorn of anything that seems too simple. Well, it's not, there is scorn, but it's not simple at all. It's very complicated to understand how the mind <laughs> influences your kidneys or your liver or your stomach, the condition of your stomach. But we're, you know, 50 years of research, 60 years of research on stress. 20 years of research on positive emotions and mindfulness, 10 years of research on awe and nature immersion. It, you know, it is turning into, I think, one of the next frontiers of, it is a next frontier of health science and medical intervention. And, you know, it, it is grounded in some of the hardest kinds of science to do, which is to measure the mind and to do the statistics and to figure out the systems that are affected. But I think it's, you know, it's only simple in how it's prescribed, right? In that you don't need to go through drug approval or 
you know, that kind of process. You can just tell people to get outside or dance or hug somebody or have more conversations with people you care about. And, and that's what I think irks the medical field is, is the simplicity of the, the prescription. Yeah, I suppose you can have the you can have the data, but yeah, actually, what you do about it is pretty simple because it's something that yeah anyone can choose to do. I I also really like this idea that you talked about in in the book and also in other interviews about karma, because I think you talk about karma, and again, karma is one of these things that it, it, I guess we think it's a decent way to live your life because if everyone did it, it would it would help us out. But again, you're talking about it as though you're talking about it in terms of actually what it does to you. So if you behave in this karmic fashion, it's not just that you're, you know, you're making the world a possibly a slightly better place, but it actually has tangible health benefits for the person doing it. Have I, yeah. have I listened to that correctly? Yeah, no, no. I mean, you know, we are, as well as other moral sentiments, if you will, like compassion, tend to make us more charitable and kind and cooperative and you share more. Uh, those are all findings we talk about. I talk about in the book that what William James called saintly tendencies. And it's naive to think that that's the end of the process, but our actions go out into social networks, right? And if I'm kind to you, you then study show will be kind to other people. They'll think more highly of me or direct kindness toward me. So yeah, I think that you know, whether you call it um, karma or how our kindness spreads through social networks, as social network scientists like to call it, and the kindness is contagious, uh, it's very real. And it's, it's why, it's part of the story of why awe benefits people health-wise, is that the, it indirectly builds out stronger communities. Um, so it's, it's a very important scientific translation of an old idea yeah because i think the first thing i thought i thought of when i heard the idea was you know great scenes in nature or great pieces yeah. of music these might be the most thing, things that come most readily to mind for people but uh you talking you're talking also about the kindness of others is a big one that's one yeah. of the sources you can be really moved by you see someone help someone when they really didn't need to, or they could have walked on by. And this, this, this gives you this feeling of awe and yeah. all the tangible benefits that go with it. it. That was one of the most astonishing discoveries. And I love your description, Richard, you know, um, the everyday kindness and courage and overcoming and strength of other people was the most universal source of all. And it wasn't nature or spirituality or great music. It was just people around us sharing and speaking truth to power and overcoming hardship. You know, the medical doctors that I teach um, during the pandemic, thousands of them, one of the most consistent stories they tell uh, is, you know, they'll give a hard diagnosis to somebody, you know, about their life may be ending. And those people often respond with gratitude and a sense of, you know, reverence or kindness. So, they're morally inspired by these people's strength. Um, and that's what we found in our research. And, you know, in the conversations around this, you know, what you realize with the idea of moral beauty producing awe is we just have to open our eyes and look around us, look at the kindness that's holding societies together, 
how courageous people are and, and remind ourselves of, of that source of awe. So I suppose it's really, you want to look at things and take, take them in, whether they're good or bad. Yeah. Because there's another, another bit that stood out to me. There was a quote from um, a spiritual leader, Roshi Joan, I think it was. Yeah. And yeah. she talked, and you were talking about how when the, when other people suffer, yeah, it, it forces people to turn away, and we we you know we we might feel a bit judgy about that, and think if you're turning away from suffering, it's that you don't care. Whereas in, in reality, it's more that people can't cope with the pain of other people. And, and the quote from her, I wrote it down. She said, I think it was, if you breathe in another person's suffering and breathe it out transformed this is this idea that if you're strong enough to look at them while they're suffering both for you and for them it can you know have this healing effect that you know she developed that thinking out of her contemplative practice in buddhism but also decades of work in hospice care uh was a leading developer of hospice care for people with aids i think and you know that practice of of you know encountering suffering like i did when my brother died it was, it was two years of horrific suffering, you know, uh, colon cancer is no joke in the realm of health and well-being. A lot of, you know, encountering suffering is just a universal. It's, it's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to people you love. It is as the Buddha say, it's the first noble truth that you're going to face that. And, and, uh, I did that full force when my brother got colon cancer and it, it, for the first year. I really struggled. And then I, I really immersed myself in that philosophy of rather than turning away or trying to fix it, you, you gain awareness of it, you breathe it in and you let it go. Uh, and also I would say, Richard, like awe helped me here, which is just to think about, you know, when I was looking at my brother, like just to fit, just to contextualize his suffering in terms of the bigger life that he had had how much love he had experienced, how it, this is part of the life cycle of, you know, we, we are born and we grow and then we decay and die. And all of those are, are ways to situate a, a life of where somebody is suffering in a broader meaning system. And that, along with Roshi Joan Halifax's thinking about breathing it in and letting it go, transformed everything for me. It's very useful when we encounter suffering of other people. To breathe it in and let it go. Yeah, I think people are kind of afraid, maybe. Obviously, if it's someone you're very close to, you're there in it regardless. But I think people are maybe a bit afraid to, to, to go there with the suffering of others. It's horrifying, you know, and it's horrifying and terrifying to think about dying. It is destabilizing to think about losing people you love and are part of your life. It's profound. And that was the hardest thing in writing this book is to make sense of that. And it took me years, two years of grief and things like the just thinking about the life and death cycle, the, the idea in Japanese thinking of wabi sabi, that everything goes through this cycle, you know, talking to indigenous scholars like Dr. Yuria Salidwin in the book about cycles of life there. It's just inherent in our existence, right? Darwin, that evolution is about this cycle of life. So it, it took a lot for me to really grasp that. And it was transformative. 
yeah, I suppose facing everything. And one very important thing my mother taught me is I remember a friend of mine, his dad died when we were still kids. So his dad was probably in his 40s at the time. And I remember going to see him and my, my mum's, one thing my mum said was don't not mention it. Because you yeah. say when you lose someone, so many people, they don't, they don't mention it because they think, well, they, they won't want me to bring it to the surface. You know, they'll want to be alone with it. And, you know, perhaps if, if you don't know them that well, but I think you've got to face it some way when you can, you know, you've got to. You know, and I mean, and it's been so striking talking about this book now for six weeks that the conversations around dying and grief have been one of the kind of centerpieces of the conversations. And we could learn in the West from other cultures, you know, as like in Bhutan, they have uh, impermanence exercises that kids do in schools where they think about, the full life of a grandparent and how they started as children and met, went through development or now are old and will pass away and they just embrace it, right? So it was a challenge for me, a struggle, and then ultimately something that taught me a lot to think about cycles of life. So they talk to kids about the inevitable. Oh yeah. When they're still... Yeah. They have practices and classroom exercises about this. So now you say that it's, it's kind of weird that we don't yeah people, i mentioned my dog earlier and people say with pets don't they pets are good because they teach kids that you know that there is a life cycle and that all lives come to end and because they live less time you know you get to you get to see it while you're still young but i mean it shouldn't be too much of an intellectual leap for anyone of any age to to know i mean we all know everyone dies at some yeah point. yeah but i guess we do we want to like you know, yeah, not if we don't mention it, it won't it won't be real, that kind of thing, which is a, which is infantilizing for the rest of us, really, isn't it? It is. It and, and I think it's a you know, when I look at the United States and I look at our levels of anxiety, which are higher than other countries, and I have an encounter with my younger daughter where she really had death anxiety and I didn't know how to talk about it with her in a really direct, honest way. And a lot of I'm thinking maybe part of Western anxiety is we don't think about the life cycle and talk about it directly and honestly because you're trying to make everything perfect and, and yeah. never ending yeah yeah i mean yeah i think it goes to i mean you i suppose you could look at it i mean you could look at it in, in wider scales it's like countries want to make themselves seem per, like permanent states but if you look at history everything everything yeah. comes to an end but everything's hard as a political leader say well you know well We'll enjoy it while it lasts, but this will come crashing down at some point. No, yeah, I'm not quite having the honesty. You, you talked also about because we, you know, I say the 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 seeing amazing things might be the bit you'd go to, but we also talk about the grief. But what, what another bit that stood out? You talk about troops, and I do a bit of work with a military charity in, here in the UK, and it's about the problems people can face when they when they leave and you and you put it in a way that is would probably be helpful to them because you put it in an awe concept. You said that you said that civilian life leaves them hungering for awe. And I think they are not military, but I know a lot of people that are. And I think they might they would probably maybe think about it in those terms. But yeah, we think about they've gone and seen horrible things. So we're all looking at suffering in terms of PTSD from seeing their friends blown apart, which sadly yeah. in recent years has been a has been a big thing. But it may be that more of the problem is not that 
grief, not the, the trauma of seeing the bad things, but it's no longer having the all. Yeah. No long, longer having this life where they're seeing fantastic things, good and bad. Yeah. And, and feeling their courage, right. You know, and using their courage for action. I mean, uh, yeah, it was an honor to work with Stacy bear, a veteran, um, who got thousands of veterans, tens of thousands of us citizens, hundreds of thousands of us citizens outdoors through the Sierra club. Uh, and he gave them all, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, amazing river rafting and rock climbing and the like. And and he and I, in doing that work for a couple of years, I was around a lot of veterans and I had this sense like, you know, and also talking with Stacy that that's what they miss. You know, they they miss the the wildness of, of where, where they've been and the, the intensity. I remember, Richard, when I was doing that work, I think it was a tsunami in Indonesia, and I may get this wrong, the country, but and apparently in the United States, hundreds of veterans showed up to uh, veterans offices to try to go to Indonesia to help. <laughs> you know, they just want to be in intense, vast, powerful places to assist. And so I, you know, and I think this is true of a lot of mental health, um, you, know, you know, young people who have a lot of courage, like we should be thinking about not only medicating them, but finding directions of awe for them and we did that with our veterans and our study found you know they went rafting for a day 30 percent drop in ptsd symptoms for a week so i hope i i hope this thinking about awe transforms our approach to some of the mental struggles that are really hard to to move yeah because i think we we all accept now that you need to eat well and do some yes. exercise you know, not just to live, but not just to live longer, although that's a very important reason to do it, but to be happy. Yeah. Today, you know, you need to, you need to, you need to push your body a little bit. You need to put the right, put the right fuel in. So we've kind of accepted that, but you're saying this is an extra thing that we should, we should just accept as normal, right? I do. I, you know, when you think about, once you think about awe and like, okay, maybe I'll be healthier in my heart and my mind if I get a little bit of awe couple of minutes. Um, we know uh, it's it's not as hard to get as you might imagine or find it. And then you think about how you can find it of getting outdoors, gardening, looking at clouds, um, listening to some great music, you know, getting into a museum. We just published a paper of kids in museums, reading ideas that really matter to you, thinking about, I love this exercise of, and I do this with um, the people I teach, like think about a mentor who's who's inspired you morally, you know? And and then suddenly people think, oh my God, I'm thinking about Mrs. You know, Byers in my, my writing class and she taught me how to write a metaphor and, and you're tearing up, you know? So there are a lot of ways to find awe. I hope that it will become much like gratitude or mindfulness, a pathway to health in our broader public. I mean, it's the sort of thing, I, yeah, I'd before reading the book, you know, again, without maybe maybe thinking about it too deeply, it's simple things like I want to take my daughter to school, there's there's a quick route you can go through traffic, or there's yeah. a nice long route you can go through the park. Exactly. And when you're when you're and then when I'm driving through the park, I'm not going this way because it's the quickest way. I'm going here because I want to see stuff. And you know, you look and there's deer, yeah. and parakeets and stuff. And it makes, you know, it might take a couple of minutes more, but the difference it makes to the 
beginning of your day is huge. It's huge. You know, and it's these simple redesigns of how your route to work, your route to your kid's school. Do you take a moment and look at the sky? You know, how are you listening to music, right? And are you listening, you know, just sort of haphazardly or are you listening to find music that brought you tears when you were younger, right? So I think there are a lot of simple activities to, to get us to more, more awe. And you mentioned, um, I don't think you used the word hippie, but long hair, California psychology thing. At what point did, on that subject, it's possibly how people see it, at what point did psychedelics come into it for you? Personally or research-wise? Well, you either, you know, you can... Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, psychedelics came into my life when I was 17 and uh, really changed how my levels of anxiety and, you know, you know, with LSD and the like. And then, you know, empirically, we're starting to do work on it and, and have, along with Peter Hendricks, made the case that one of the reasons he's synthesized and then organic plant medicines, you know, with long traditions in many indigenous cultures help us is through awe. You know, they are self-dissolves. We feel like there are broader patterns in the world, in nature and in culture and in music and social life that we're part of, um, broader systems, what I call them. And that that's profound, you know, to, to give people the opportunity to connect to these larger systems of meaning you know and for me you know so i think that is a very central hypothesis scientifically about why plant medicines psychedelics work and then it is also true of my own life that they taught me i have community around me that i'm part of nature uh, i'm not separate from it that that music has patterns of meaning that make my mind feel coherent so they're I think awe will be a very central and dynamic idea for our advances in understanding psychedelics and plant medicines. And what do they what are they doing in the body that leads as as far as we can measure? What are they doing in the body that's leading you to these experiences of awe and better balance? Well, what we know is that it deactivates the default mode network, which both awe and psychedelics like synthesized psilocybin. Uh, and, and in that deactivation, yourself is just less, you hear it less, you're less self-critical, less self-focused. And then that opens you up to, you know, ideas about kindness or loving humanity or feeling that nature has a consciousness, right? That it isn't just this human versus other divide. Uh, but we don't know the neurophysiology of of those processes, the more oceanic processes, and and all will point the way. So we don't we don't know exactly. No. Oh yeah, that's made me think of something else you said, and I can't remember exactly what it was about the self-critical. Yeah. What's it? What, what was that about the the person who who the constantly the side of you that's criticizing and worrying? Well, I called it the default self in the book. Uh, you know, because okay, yeah. it is, it's like, are you doing the right work? Are you on task? Are you getting your work goals satisfied? Are you rising in status? That's kind of, we have this self structure in our mind that keeps us trying to rise in society uh, because it's beneficial to us, right? And the people that are around, are around us, but uh, it can really undermine our well-being as a lot of data show. And so, you know, we need these ways to calm down the self-focus and shift our attention to 
things outside of the self and and awe is one so the default self is useful because it's like the grown-up there telling you you should be doing yeah. it you should be doing that yeah but, the ego yeah but you have to find a way to stop listening to it yeah and, okay so you just so you so you have to i don't know overload the mind with great things so it doesn't have time to be bothering you the whole time you know yeah well you know and that's and you, people know this intuitively, like, wow, when I go out and walk in nature, I feel different. When I walk through a city and observe all of its amazing activity, I feel different. When I shift my attention away from the self to a great piece of art, I feel different or a meditation practice. And, and one of the pathways across those activities is feeling wonder and amazement and awe you know, that, that takes us out of ourself. And I love Jane Goodall's phrasing of, being amazed at things outside of yourself yes and you talk about the importance of physical contact as well which maybe again most people wouldn't think of as all and your sports basketball you're saying pick up basketball this is yeah this is kind of one-on-one -on -one. we don't have such a big basketball thing over here but it made me think because you're saying there's there's human contact in that because you're barging into each other and whilst it might seem like a bit of rough and tumble it's actually a bonding thing because there's human, there's human contact and this charity that i mentioned before the, the main a lot of that is using sport and the main sport is brazilian jiu-jitsu and i don't know if you know about that and one of the things people don't like about it is you're, you're wrestling it's basically like wrestling and you're kind of there's, there's a lot of physical contact it's not always that nice people sweating on you but it's also, I think, an important thing that we don't do as grown-ups so much. I mean, yeah, kids, yeah. kids roll around and wrestle, but as a grown-up, it's not an accept, really an acceptable thing. You stop doing it when you're not a kid anymore. And we feel we need to be, grow up and be sensible. But you're saying we need this. Ah, yeah, I mean, you know, Western European society is almost a joke, right, compared to uh, what many parts of the world in, in past times in human history of, like, our amount of physicality of wrestling and, you know, dancing and ritualized forms like capoeira or, you know, or judo or the like. So, yeah, I think, um, and I, again, you know, it's interesting. There are many benefits to playing physical sports with other people as I, you know, as we know, benefits you physically, but it's also, you know, it's the emotions of, you know, camaraderie and suddenly you're in the flow in the game and, and then you celebrate and you feel awestruck by some event in the game. And so we, we shouldn't lose sight of how these physical activities bring us social and emotional benefits. When I do yoga in a class, I don't know the strangers. We're all doing the same posture. We're synchronizing. Everybody does it in their unique way. And I, I have this feeling that comes over me so often of soft, quiet awe that we're all humans doing this ancient practice together and finding peace. And so uh, I, one of the, the joys of writing the book is, was to profile how important sports are in our sense of, of deep meaning uh, that awe brings us. Is there, is there data for the good that yoga does you? Yeah, there's a lot. I think James Broad has a book. Because I've yeah. talked to doctors about that before and they're and, and they're a bit like, so, well, you know, it's probably good for you physically. And if people get benefit from it, that's good. But is it, so, he talks about stuff that's specific to yoga. Yeah, yeah, it's a review. I'm interested in yoga because I do it myself. And, the, and I think the, 
the group aspect is very interesting because I've noticed the British are, are quite reserved. So you get you go into the studio and when it's really crowded, you can see people sort of going at the beginning and they're like, excuse me, excuse me, and they're breathing <laughs> in. And like you, you have that feeling of, oh, I wish there weren't quite, weren't quite so many people here. But when you do the classes, the more people, the better. You know? Yeah, no. Yeah, and you don't, you don't care if you've been elbowed by someone or something. Yeah. Because you kind of feed off each other's energy. And, you know, part of the lesson in the book, you know, we're such an isolated, you know, pandemic, lockdown, looking at our cell phones, so much individualism. And the book is saying this collective effervescence or being together, moving together, singing, yoga, sports, prayer, right? Praying. A minister told me it's so different when we pray together, when we meditate together. So and I think that part of the mystery of of the power of being together is is just thinking about awe you know, and that it brings us together in this transcendent way. Fantastic. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for your time. And best of luck with the book. And I'll do what I can to share it with as many people as possible. Thank you. I really appreciate Professor, it. Professor Dacher Gartner, thank you very much. Okay. Bye, Richard. Cheers. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.